Hello, this is Father John Arthur or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our fifth program on the theology of the body, male and female, he created them. The Wednesday audiences of Pope John Paul II, given over the five-year period between 1979 and 1984. We're using the edition edited by Professor Michael Waldstein, published in 2006 by the Daughters of St. Paul. Number five, the meaning of original solitude. In the last reflection of the present cycle, we drew a preliminary conclusion from Genesis about man's creation as male and female. The Lord Jesus appealed to these words, that is, to the beginning, in his dialogue about the indissolubility of marriage. See St. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, and St. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. However, the conclusion we drew does not yet put an end to the series of our analyses. In fact, we must regard the narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 in a wider context, which will allow us to establish a series of meanings of the ancient text to which Christ appealed. Today, accordingly, we will reflect on the meaning of man's original solitude, a twofold context. The following words of Genesis directly give us the point of departure for such a reflection. It is not good that the man, male, should be alone. I want to make him a help similar to himself. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It is God, Yahweh, who speaks these words. They are part of the second account of the creation of man, and thus come from the Yahwist tradition. As we already recalled above, it is significant that in the Yahwist text, the account of the creation of man male is a passage by itself. See Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. That comes before the account of the creation of the first woman. See Genesis chapter 2 verses 21 and 22. It is further significant that the first man, Adam, created from the dust of the ground, is defined as male, is, only after the creation of the first woman. Thus, when God, Yahweh, speaks the words about solitude, he refers them to the solitude of man as such, and not only to that of male. It is difficult, however, merely based on this fact, to draw far-reaching conclusions. Nevertheless, the complete context of this solitude, about which Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 speaks, can convince us that here we are dealing with the solitude of man, male and female, and not only with the solitude of the man, male, caused by the absence of the woman. It seems, therefore, on the basis of the whole context, that this solitude has two meanings, one deriving from man's very nature, that is, from his humanity, and this is evident in the account of Genesis chapter 2, and the other deriving from the relationship between male and female, and in some way this is evident on the basis of the first meaning. A detailed analysis of the description seems to confirm it. The problem of 
solitude shows itself only in the context of the second account of the creation of man. The first account does not mention this problem. There, man is created in a single act as male and female. God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The second account, which, as we have already mentioned, speaks first about the creation of man and only afterward about the creation of woman from the rib of the male, concentrates our attention on the fact that man is alone. And this turns out to be a fundamental anthropological issue that is in some way prior to the issue raised by the fact that man is male and female. This issue is prior not only in the chronological sense but rather in the existential sense. It is prior by its very nature. This is how the issue of man's solitude will appear from the point of view of the theology of the body. If we are able to carry out a deeper analysis of the second creation account in Genesis chapter 2, man in search of his existence, the statement of God, Yahweh, it is not good that the man should be alone, appears not only in the immediate context of the decision to create the woman, I want to make him a help similar to himself, but also in the wider context of motives and circumstances that explain more deeply the meaning of man's original solitude. The Yahwist text links the creation of man above all with the need to cultivate the ground, Genesis chapter 2 verse 5, and this would seem to correspond to the call to subdue and rule the earth found in the first account, see Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. After this, the second creation account speaks about placing man in the Garden of Eden, and in this way introduces us to the state of his original happiness. Up to this moment, man is the object of the creative action of God, Yahweh, who at the same time is, as legislator, sets the conditions of the first covenant with man. Already, this divine act underlines man's subjectivity. Subjectivity finds a further expression when the Lord God formed every kind of animal of the field and all the birds of the air and brought them to the man, male, to see what he would call them. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. Thus, the first meaning of man's original solitude is defined based on a specific test or on an examination that man undergoes before God and in some way also before himself. Through this test, man gains the consciousness of his own superiority, that is, that he cannot be put on par with any other species of living beings on the earth. In fact, as the text says, whatever the man called every living creature, that was to be its name. Genesis chapter 2 verse 19. In this way, the man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But the man, male, did not find a help similar to himself. Genesis chapter 2 verses 19 and 20. This whole part of the text is undoubtedly a preparation for the account of the creation of woman. Nevertheless, it is also 
it also has its own deep meaning independently of this creation. Thus, the created man finds himself from the first moment of his existence before God in search of his own being, as it were. One could say in search of his own definition. Today, one would say in search of his own identity. The observation that man is alone in the midst of the visible world, and in particular among living beings, has a negative meaning in this search, inasmuch as it expresses what man is not. Nevertheless, the observation that he cannot identify himself essentially with the visible world of the other living beings, Animalia, has at the same time a positive aspect for this primary search. Even if this observation is not yet a complete definition, it nevertheless constitutes one of its elements. If we accept the Aristotelian tradition and logic and anthropology, one would have to define this element as the proximate genus, genus proximum. The Yahweh's text allows us, however, to discover also further elements of this admirable passage in which man finds himself alone before God, above all, to express through a first self-definition his own self-knowledge as the first and fundamental manifestation of humanity. Self-knowledge goes hand in hand with knowledge of the world, of all visible creatures, of all living beings to which man has given their names to affirm his own dissimilarity before them. Thus, consciousness reveals man as the one who possesses the power of knowing with respect to this visible world, with this knowledge which makes him go in some way outside of his own being, man at the same time reveals himself to himself in all the distinctiveness of his being. He is not only essentially and subjectively alone. In fact, solitude also signifies man's subjectivity, which constitutes itself through self-knowledge. Man is alone because he is different from the visible world, from the world of living beings. When we analyze the text of Genesis, we are in some way witness of how man, with the first act of self-consciousness, distinguishes himself before God, Yahweh, from the whole world of living beings, Animalia, how he consequently reveals himself to himself and at the same time affirms himself in the visible world as a person. That process of seeking a definition of himself, sketched so incisively in Genesis chapter 2 verses 19 and 20, leads not only attaching ourselves again to the Aristotelian tradition to indicating the genus proximum expressed in Genesis 2 with the words gave the name to which corresponds the specific differentia which according to Aristotle's definition is nous, zoon, notikon. This process also leads to the first delineation of the human being as a person with the proper subjectivity that characterizes the person.
Here we interrupt the analysis of the meaning of man's original solitude. We will take it up again in a week. That's how Pope John Paul II ended his fifth catechesis on man and woman. He created them a theology of the body. This is part one of the work, the words of Christ. Chapter one, Christ appeals to the beginning. Number two, the meaning of original solitude, its twofold context, and man in search of his essence. Repeatedly, Pope John Paul II speaks about meaning. He speaks about series of meanings. He speaks about two meanings of solitude, via nature and via relationship. Philosophically, to study meaning is an epistemological approach. What does something mean? Does it mean the same thing at the same time in the same sense? Repeatedly he says, at the same time, this but also that. These are distinctions he's making regarding human nature. So often we look at solitude as a negation, as without company, without another. But it also can show the integrity, the substantiality. Here I stand. Pope John Paul II speaks of solitude, knowing full well that there are, and have been, and will be, those called monks who are alone with God. Even if you're in a crowded room, you can still be united with God. Even if there's a horde of people screaming at you, you can be at peace with God. Pope John Paul II speaks in this passage from his Theology of the Body of original solitude, even before the fall. So it is part of the good creation. Man sees all the creation, all the birds of the air, and the creatures of the sea, the beast of the field, and he recognizes that he is none of them. Yes, he is a living being, but he sees that he is different. He sees that even before the fall, there is no fit helper, no fit helpmate. And this is why God makes woman the better half of the race, so many would say, and rightly so. Our editor, Professor Waldstein, points out that there is a difficulty in translation, in linguistics, with the word man and male, homo, homo, om, hombre, so many of the different languages use the same word for man and for male. Man as in the race, the human race. The Holy Father here is speaking about the human race, man and woman. He created them, male and female, he created them. In the divine image, God created them. The complementarity of male and female shows that relationship which exists from the beginning. The eternal God, trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, in solitude from all eternity, insofar as God was all there was, all there is, all that will be. But even in the mystery of the original and eternal solitude of God, you have the trinity of persons a communion of persons. And since the human being, male and female, created to the image of God, exist in communion 
with one another. This is part of the analyses of the theology of the body. Pope John Paul II engaged upon embarking upon a deeper understanding not only of sacred scripture but of our human existence what it means to be a human being male or female in this he recognizes the fundamental anthropological issue based on our existentiality that we exist in this sense he focuses on the meaning of human life human being, human existence. He does this starting with the sacred scripture, starting with the so-called Yahwist passage of the book of Genesis. Man existing, receiving his existence from the eternal being, the eternal existent, who is God. But man who exists searches for his being. What does it mean to be? Shakespeare echoes this in his great writing, to be or not to be. That is the question. Man searches not only for his being, but for the definition. What does it mean to be a man? Homo sapien, a rational animal. Man searches for his being, for his definition. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean for me to be me? What does it mean for you to be you? Man searches likewise for his identity. Who am I? That's the existential question. What is my essence? We search for the very core of our being. What makes us different from the cattle, or the cats, or the birds, or the fish? There's something in us. There's a part of us which is unlike any other being on the face of the earth. And the Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, in this theology of the body, also mentions the via negativa, so-called, what man is not, the negative meaning. Man is not just a beast. Man is not just so much H2O and salt, saline. We are rational animal. That is, we are not irrational. We need not be. We may act irrationally sometimes, but that is not our default setting, as it were. We are living beings amongst other living beings, but unlike the other living beings, we have knowledge of ourselves and of the world, of all visible creatures and all living beings. These are four different sorts of knowledge, knowledge of self, knowledge of the world, knowledge of all visible creatures, knowledge of all living beings. So not only do we search for our own being, our own definition, our own identity, our own essence, but even that of all around us. And unlike so many of the other beings, we are conscious of this. We are self-conscious. We have the power to know, to understand. And in this, likewise, we are made to the image of God. We are different man, the human being, male and female. We are different from the visible world. We are different from the world of the other living beings. Pope John Paul II, in this passage of his man and woman, he created them, theology of the body, he does not cite the Second Vatican Council's pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes, but I'm sure it was in the back of his mind. He says, man reveals himself to himself. 
the council, which took place between the years 1962 and 1965, and the young bishop, Karl Wojtyla, who would become Pope John Paul II, was very instrumental in its writing. Pope John Paul II's favorite passage, which he cited so often in his pontifical magisterium, his teaching ministry as the Bishop of Rome, those 27 years, goes like this. Christ reveals not only God to us, but us to ourselves. Christ Jesus, true God and true man, is a man who reveals himself to himself and to us, I guess, by faith. Very important. These theological issues, these anthropological issues, these philosophical issues, these words of Christ who appeals to, as it was in the beginning, how God made us male and female, how in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he saw that all that he had made was good, and part of that good creation included the original solitude in our nature, in our relationships. Yes, I am a son of my parents, but God forbid either or both of them would die. I still remain. There's a solitude there. I'm made for communion. We speak face to face. We speak on the phone or send cards and letters. Now, electronic mail. That's the relationship. Pope John Paul II, in this passage from his great work, Theology of the Body, again speaks of the indissolubility of holy marriage. Unlike a bouillon cube which dissolves in order to make soup, Unlike Alka-Seltzer, which dissolves in water as medicine, holy marriage does not dissolve in dissolubility till death do us part. This is yet part, again, of Pope John Paul II's man and woman. He created them a theology of the body, hearkening back to the very words of Jesus Christ, who reminds us that in the beginning it was not the way of divorce and remarriage. It was because of the hardness of our hearts that Moses permitted the bill of the decree of divorce. Christ our Lord appeals to the beginning, and it is in Christ our Lord that we know who we are and whose we are, the meaning of our very being, being in ourselves, able to give ourselves one to another, as husband and wife do in holy marriage, and able likewise to give ourselves to God not only in holy baptism, but some in consecrated religious life through the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Some men through priestly ordination or diaconate ordination or episcopal consecration. It is not good for the man to be alone. This even before the fall, God reminds us that we are made for communion, communion of persons, human persons, and human persons with the divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It may be helpful to note that Pope John Paul II invokes Aristotle and Aristotelian ways of thinking twice in this passage of his Theology of the Body. He does not impose, but he proposes Aristotelian tradition, Aristotelian logic, Aristotelian anthropology when he speaks about a proximate genus, when he speaks about 
our very nature, what is essential in a human being. There are those in 2010 who deny that there is such a thing as human nature or that anything is essential to anything. But Pope John Paul II was not a relativist. He believed, he thought, he understood that the world was intelligible, that we could know things about things, ourselves included. To be a human being is a great thing, for we are able to know, to understand. Anthropology is the science of anthropos, of a man, of a human being. We can know things not only about atoms or molecules or tectonic plates or the stars in their constellations, but we can even know things about ourselves. Do we know ourselves exhaustively? Oh no, although we may exhaust ourselves seeking to know about ourselves and about the universe. We are beings in the world, but we are not merely material beings. There is something in me which is not just my body, and the same is true of you. For what is the difference between a dead man and a live man? The mass, the quantity, is the same. Put me on the scale. What's the difference of a breath? But when you hear a soprano sing, when you listen to a physicist relate the intricacies of certain realities which have been studied, when you listen to a poet, then you can tell that there is something going on here, that to be a human being is to be unlike any other beings, for sparrows sing sparrow songs, and beavers build beaver huts, but human beings may live in igloos, or in teepees, or in skyscrapers, or in lean-tos. Human beings may speak French, or Spanish, or German, or Italian, or even our own English. We may sing opera, we may sing country, we may sing a dirge, we can teach each other our songs. The ability to know, the power of the human intelligence, this is what sets us apart, not just our opposable thumb, useful as it is, our ability to know, our ability to love. This is part of what makes us in the divine image. God who is love, God who is all-knowing, God who has existed from all eternity, who has given us our being. These are things in the background when Pope John Paul II makes his presentations on the theology of the body. Man and woman, he created them. Thank God for these reflections. Thank God for our ability to reflect on them. Thank God for the grace he gives us to act accordingly, to correspond to his call to holiness. Having gone over the twofold context of the meaning of original solitude, man in search of his essence, in Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body, male and female, he created them. Next time, we'll go over solitude and the meaning of the body and the alternative between death and immortality, this being the first part of the Theology of the Body, the words of Christ, Christ who appealed to the way it was, the way things were in the beginning.
He is our Redeemer. He is the one who created us together with the Father and the Spirit. He is the true man who never sinned, who saves us from our sins by his obedience unto death, death on the cross in his body, which rose glorious and triumphant on the third day, conquering Satan and sin, the cross and the grave. In him we rise. Until next time, be assured of my prayers. God bless you.